You are listening to the Zookeeper Stories Podcast with your host, Matthew Price. The goals of this show are to share the stories of animal care professionals around the world, give advice on how to get to the field, and share information that will help out new zookeepers. One of the most common questions people in our field are asked is, how did you get your job? I hope to shed some light on that question and many more by investigating the origin stories of the people on the front lines of the animal care world, the zookeepers. back to another episode of the Zookeeper Stories podcast. Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, today we have uh, Lindsay King with us. Uh, she's been a zookeeper for 12 years. She started at the Elmwood Park Zoo in Philadelphia and has been at the San Diego Zoo for going on 11 years now. How's it going today, Lindsay? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, that's great to hear. Uh, and it's a good time to have you, actually, because you are the vice president of AZAC. And from what I gather, looking at social media, you are in charge of National Zookeeper Week. Uh, it's a week where we celebrate all of the hard work and amazing things that zookeepers do all across the country. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that later and some of the events that's happening at the San Diego Zoo. Um, but first, uh, the first question that I always like to ask my guests is, how did you come to fall in love with animals? And at what point in that process did you decide you wanted to do it as a career? All right. Well, I guess probably my first real experience with animals was my mom rode horses when I was little. And um, probably around age seven, she brought me out to the barn with her. And I mean, you can't really resist a pony as a little girl. So uh, my mom actually, to, uh, to my knowledge and to my memory, uh, gave up riding so that I could ride. And I took riding lessons every week growing up. My best friends in high school probably were the people that I met at the barn. So, you know, we all went to different schools and would come together and ride. Um, so what age did you start doing that? Uh, like seven. And then shortly after that would compete. So walk, trot, walk, trot, canter, all English. Um, and then I got into jumping and just some small shows locally growing up. I've never really been a competitive person, but the horse shows were fun. What and is uh what what does English mean? Um, it's just the style of riding and the saddle is different. So you know those Western saddles with the big bulky horn on the front, and the English saddles are smaller, more streamlined, made for for jumping. Yeah. Um. So I did that all growing up and through college, but probably you know I always knew kind of at that point that I wanted to work with animals. We had cats growing up and the first thought as a kid is always like, I want to be a veterinarian because you think that's what you have to do to work with animals. So I think probably in like fourth grade, I interviewed my local veterinarian for a, you know, job profile. In fourth grade? Something like that, wow. I think. I feel like I was going through old school things last time I was at my parents' house and found a little interview. But <laughs> um, so then in high school, my first job was actually at a veterinary clinic in the kennels, so taking care of the sick animals and the boarding animals, dog walks and stuff like that. And I liked it, but it gave me that peek into the veterinary side of things and I was out on surgeries. Like that was not gonna be my thing. I just So you didn't do a whole lot of like dissecting in, in high school. No, or... yeah, and you know what, like that stuff was actually interesting to me, like dissecting. Like maybe I could have taken like a pathology tract and that would have gotten me, but there's something about being responsible for like the survival of an animal on an operating table that terrified me. 
That's an interesting perspective because <laughs> a lot of people have said that so far um, that they maybe wanted to be a vet, but the reason why they didn't was more because of like it would be sad because you're always taking care of sick or dying animals. Yeah, or um, I mean, and I and, and so I it's a lot of responsibility though. Yeah, but, yeah. I definitely dealt with a lot of sick animals anyways in in a kennel position, but mm-hmm. um. I had had a friend who went to a zoo camp at Bush Gardens, I think probably the year before I met her or at some point, or maybe she heard about it. I can't remember if she had already gone, but I remember going on the computer and finding this camp. It was called the Terra Trekkers Camp done by Bush Gardens in Tampa. And I printed out all the information and I left it on our kitchen counter like, hey, mom and dad. <laughs> a gentle this, suggestion. This looks kind of cool. And so it was kind of around that point that I thought, well, like exotic animals, like I've, I didn't grow up uh, in a place that had a zoo. So I grew up in Albany, New York, about halfway between Montreal and New York City. Um, So our closest zoo is probably the Burnett Park Zoo in Syracuse and then Bronx Zoo. So I had been to those places a little bit here and there. Um, We had a little, um, a small kids amusement park right down the street from us that had deer and basically... As a little kid, I would go and feed the deer and not care about the rides or anything like that. I just want to go feed the deer. So, um, yeah, I, I told my parents that I wanted to go to this camp, and they were like, okay. So I went. It, it kind of made me feel funny. Like, I went to zoo camp after, I think maybe, like, junior year, either sophomore or junior year of high school. I was like, I'm going to zoo camp. So I went to Florida for a week, and... You know, we got to work alongside the keepers, cleaning exhibits. Uh, we had to do like a project on a specific animal. Got to learn how to handle some different things. And I distinctly remember cleaning sloppy hippo poop out of the bottom of a drained hippo pool, pushing it up the ramp in a wheelbarrow and thinking like, how cool is that? I mean, at this point I would be like, nope, I don't really, I'm good. <laughs> but when I was 16, having the privilege at that point to clean up hippo poop got me excited. And I went back to the camp the next year. So that kind of got me sold on knowing that I wanted to work with exotic animals. That's awesome. So I've never actually heard of that before. Um, I've heard of like, I actually taught a summer camp as my first job at a zoo, but it was definitely not alongside keepers doing mm-hmm. keeper work. So that's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome experience. I wonder if they, you know, they still do that. I actually don't know. I haven't looked into it, but okay. I know I, I feel like, um, you know, SeaWorld had a similar program and I know they were still doing that when I moved out here, but that was still 10 years ago. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, high schoolers, uh, if you want to find out what it's like to be a zookeeper, check out that program at Bush Gardens and SeaWorld uh, and see if it's still still happening. I should probably have that information for you. <laughs> I know. Sorry. I, sh- I should have had that information. Uh, but uh, anyway, the internet is a, is a thing where people can find all anything they want to know. So check that out. Um, okay. So um, did that two years in high school um, and then obviously college is coming up. Did yeah. You, when you went to college, did you have in mind that you wanted to do something with zoology or were you on a different track? Or were... Yeah, I, I was thinking zoology for sure. And then um, I kind of thought, well, there's a school in New York that has a zoology track and it actually has a two plus two with Santa Fe um, Community College with their teaching zoo down there. So Oswego um, State University in New York. And since I'm from New York, I thought I'm going to save my parents a pretty penny. I'm going to go to a state school. I'm going to get my zoology and my um, teaching zoo certificate at the same time. Like, awesome. Love it. So I went to Oswego for my freshman year and 
I really just didn't enjoy myself. It, it wasn't totally the college experience that I was looking for. Um, my grades weren't that good. I just wasn't enjoying my classes. So I... Uh, Is that a small, smallish school? Yeah. I don't think I've even heard of it. Yeah. You know, there's a... there's uh, I don't know how many schools are in the SUNY system, State right, University right. of New York. Yeah. Um, but I guess a smallish school. And the other thing I didn't like was there was only kind of like one way in and one way out of that town. And I like, uh, I, I like options. Quite big enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. So it was great. I made some amazing friends. I rode on their equestrian team there. I had a really fun time. Um, but I knew that moving forward, it wasn't going to be the right solution for me. And so I was kind of nervous because I'm like, I thought I was going to get exactly what I wanted with that teaching zoo experience and also still getting a bachelor's in zoology. So that didn't work out, but um, uh, I have family in Burlington, Vermont, and so that city has always had a special place in my heart, and I knew that I really wanted to go to University of Vermont the whole time anyway, but I thought I would just kind of suck Try it up. And, and, and Yeah. Um, yeah it's a, a good and, thought. Uh, so I transferred as a sophomore, and it really was the best decision I ever made. Um, I transferred into the animal science program there, so a little more agriculture-based. But again, like I've had, I have a background in horses, so right. I still got to deal with horses on a regular basis. And um, I met an amazing professor, Patricia Erickson, who has a history working with zoos, um, and also she was a veterinarian. She went to Cornell. And she's just an amazing human being. And um, I'm still in touch with her today, as well as Betsy Green. She was one of my equine professors. So they really shaped my college experience. And I got everything and more that I wanted out of that program. And Pat especially brought back um, a couple specialized classes called Zoos, Exotics, and Endangered Species. And they were small group classes, about 16 people, and, um, you know, which is small group learning. Yeah. We would uh, investigate different projects or um, I can't remember any of the specific topics off my, off the top of my head, but you know, and we would go and visit some local zoos. We got to meet Jane Goodall and spend wow. some time with her as part of that class. So it was a really amazing experience. And, and all along the way, Pat was kind of encouraging me to try veterinary school and yeah, yeah. I resisted, but I was kind of curious, but in the end, um, she was actually instrumental in helping me get my first internship out of college because I didn't have a job when I graduated. Because um, as we all know, it's difficult to get a zookeeping job if you don't have the hands-on experience. So, you know, throughout college, I had volunteered a summer at the Maryland Zoo in Baltimore as in the education department working with kids. And then I worked at, uh, or I interned at a tiger refuge in Texas called Tiger Creek Wildlife Refuge. So I had experience with big cats there, but I didn't have any keeping experience in a zoo. But you got that big cat experience when you were still in college. Yeah, yeah. That's so that amazing. was after junior year of college. Yeah, I spent the summer in Texas. And and that was amazing. Like we ended up having some rescued cubs that year. So I got cub experience and um, and all of that work there for the interns was protected contact. There were a few cats that the owners would go in with, but I really never had a desire to be in the same space as an adult uh, cat, <laughs> yeah, adult tiger me, or lion. Me either. So um, how did you find out about those internships and stuff when you were in college? Were they just like part of, like, were there like a, like a job board from part of the curriculum? Or it's like, hey, there's these opportunities, uh, you know, go find them? Or 
Um, I feel like, I, you know, a place I, that you went to. I, I actually can't recall specifically how I found them. I think I may have found the tiger thing through a school um, listing of internship opportunities. Okay. Uh, I think probably for the Baltimore Zoo one, I may have just found it on their website or something so long ago. My brain <laughs> fails me. But, um, yeah, I think that I, I think the Tiger one may have been through school. Um, or there was someone who I know previously went to a different Tiger refuge in Arkansas, and so I might have just been looking into different places. And, you know, really the only thing that made it possible was the support of my family. Like I never could have imagined – moving to Texas for a summer. Right. Like, you know, they really supported me to, to follow my dream. Yeah. Cause I mean, those are probably, I'm probably unpaid or just mm -hmm. barely yeah. minimum wage. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually I, I got paid for in Maryland. That was great. And then, um, Tiger Creek was on site housing, which was great. I mean, um, and they gave us the use of a truck to get sure, around sure. town. So, um, so that was awesome. And then, yeah, so then I had my first, I graduated college with a bachelor's in animal science, um, just general animal science. And I got this internship at the Oregon Zoo in their primate grade ape area, which was completely foreign to me. Uh, and I drove my car cross country and I lived on this really cool little island outside of Portland called Sobeys Island. It's a little agriculture island with a, a woman who worked at the zoo there and uh, spent the summer working with great apes. And it was a really incredible experience. I yeah, that, had, that sounds amazing. They had a, a, a cool group of chimpanzees and orangs. And we had Francois and howler monkeys. And some of those, you know, I, I look back now compared to primate protocol that we have at San Diego Zoo. And I was like, those were the days. I mean, I loved it. I got to sit in an exhibit with Francois Langers around me eating out of a bucket. And um, it was just really, it was really special and unique. And I continued to go back up to Oregon and, and visit the people that I met when I was there, what, like 13 years ago, 12, yeah, 13 years ago. That's awesome. So I'm going to interrupt you for a minute yeah. here. Um, so during all of this, I obviously I know from knowing you, I know how much you love horses. In fact, mm -hmm. you still do some. Uh, was there ever a point or was or what was the point that said, okay, I, I don't necessarily only want to work horses, you know, as a career. I want to do some more exotic stuff. Did that stuff start, kind of start back at like Bush Gardens or throughout your internships? Yeah, or? yeah I think um, back at Bush Gardens, I kind of always knew that horses were going to be part of my life, mm -hmm. but I also knew that there was something drawing to me, drawing me to that more exotic kind of avenue and um, I'm so grateful that I've, I've still been able to keep riding horses as part of my life it, it's kind of come and gone since leaving college yeah. it's not quite been as easy but yeah definitely back in high school I knew for sure that I wasn't going to do domestics and you know livestock animals were okay and you know I loved horses but there was just something something else calling me so then I guess your goal for all these internships and everything was to kind of get at least a wide variety of experience and get as much exposure as you could to different yeah. things so you have, you know, you're more, you're no more marketable, you know, yeah. you can apply for more kinds of jobs and stuff. Okay. Yeah, I, I definitely didn't have a specific passion that I knew at that point as far as what kind of, yeah. what species I wanted to work with. I was just like, let's, let's kind of cover them all and yeah. see 
where where I fit. So when I was in Oregon, I started the, since I graduated college, my ultimate goal was to get a job. So I started applying to basically any zoo that posted a job on ACA. I probably sent out 40 plus resumes like all over the country because I knew that if I wanted a job, I had to be willing to go anywhere, whether it was Alabama, Montana, Texas, anywhere. You know, I had a couple interviews and nothing panned out. So at the end of summer, I moved back in with my parents and kind of just <laughs> didn't know what I was going to do. I just kept applying and thankfully it only took a couple months and I got an interview at Elmwood Parks just outside Philadelphia. And I went down there and it's a really small zoo, like 16 acres, but they had a really diverse collection, mostly like North and South American animals, mm -hmm. but they had jaguar and mountain lions and bison and um, bobcats and some birds of prey. So uh, bats and reptiles and an education department. So they had all those little small mammals. So really diverse, AZA accredited. And I thought, well, geez, if I could get this job, this is a great stepping stone. Yeah. So... They hired me and I spent really just just about a year there. And, you know, in my time of being there, I, I knew that I wanted to, you know, keep moving ahead. And part of me was just like, well, if you're going to be a zookeeper, you might as well be a zookeeper at the best zoo in, <laughs> in the country. Right. I mean, in my mind, right. having not been to all of the zoos in the country, yeah. but I had been to San Diego Zoo a couple of times. Uh, I'd been out here to visit friends. And oh, so, before you before, before you started working before I okay. yeah before I moved out here I think the first time I went was after I was in Texas I went out there so so you saw a job posting yeah I for saw San a job Diego, posting and, like, and I I sent my resume in and what was the job posting for just keeper just generic blanket keeper, keeper. Okay, back so then you didn't even yeah. know what you'd be working for no then. idea okay so I I did a phone interview and I got hired. Right off of the phone interview. Phone interview. Wow, that is impressive. Yeah, I was blown away. I remember calling my mom and being like, hey, and she said, hey, can I call you back? I was like, sure. <laughs> and I remember jumping around my living room going, I'm going to California. I'm going to California. That had to be one of the most incredible days it of was your life, so cool. really, because you've been trying to do this, and now all of a sudden, one year in, the, the yeah. most famous zoo in the world is, is they want you. After I was, just talking to you on the phone. I was blown away. Yeah. I was totally blown away. And so what had happened in Pennsylvania, I, was, I knew that I wanted to move on, and so I said, I'm going to apply to San Diego because San Diego. Yeah. And I'm going to apply to Nashville because Nashville seems like a cool city and I've always wanted to go there. And if I don't get hired at either, I'm just going to move to Nashville. I've heard that's a great zoo so, too. I've never been, but I've heard it's an amazing zoo. I've never been either. And I've still never been to Nashville. Like I've driven by it yeah. probably on my way to move out here, I think. And so I still need to go to Nashville. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I, I moved out here sh just after Christmas in 2005. And uh, started on January third, two thousand six, and yeah, like you, had, like I said, the job was for keeper. So I showed up on my first day and really was just like, I want to be a keeper. And I was picked up by a manager and driven to the back of the zoo on a golf cart. And I remember him saying, "Do you know what a Sichuan Takin is? Nope. Do you know what a Japanese Sorrow is? Nope. Chinese Gorel? Nope." Well, you better learn because you're going to be taking care of them. It's like, <laughs> okay. So. So you showed up day one, still not knowing. What still you not were knowing what I was. Yeah, I mean, I could have ended up anywhere. 
and I would have just That's rolled nuts. with it because at that point still yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. like, okay, whatever you want to throw at me. Like right. I'm a sponge. I was uh, 23 years old and like just still kind of in shock of the fact that I had moved across the country and had the job That's... that I knew I wanted when I was like 16 years old. So That's so funny because at that time was when I, I think February 1st was my first, February 1st, 2005 was my first day at Disney. So I was going through the same kind of thing, oh, okay. moving across the country, but from San Francisco to Orlando. Huh. Yeah. Okay, so um, so what did you end up working with in San Diego as part of your early part of your career? I mean, a lot of kind of where you are now. um, I uh, I guess it was what the Alpine string was then: reindeer, talking. But that was under not under the Mesa at that point. It it well uh, yeah it was the polar team so polar bears were part of that area as well. And there were, oh gosh, what else? There was Calamian deer and Caucasian tur and some other hoof stock around there. I'm trying to remember what the exhibits looked like back then. And we had peccary and, uh, oh gosh, animals that I don't even remember the names of. Lots of diker. <laughs> La- large variety. Yeah, of lots of yeah. lots of hoof stock and stuff. And, you know, the polar bears were part of that area. Um, so I did, I did the hoofstock, I did reindeer and stuff as well. And then towards the end of my first year on the team, I kind of started getting fed into the polar bear area a little bit. So I was getting some experience with the bears and then an opportunity came up to work with giant pandas. And I thought I've only been here a year. There's no way anyone is going to like put me at giant pandas. Well, they went down the list and they came to me. And so after a year of being at the zoo, I moved to the giant panda area because I, again, like, what do I have to lose? It's a breeding year. It's a cubbing year. And if I find out it's not for me, at least I got to have those experiences. I mean, where, how many other places in the States do you get to deal with giant pandas and giant panda cubs? I mean, there's what, like maybe like a dozen, maybe 15 keepers in the entire country that work with pandas, you know, something like that. So, so yeah, in a, what, that would have been like 2007 by then. Um, we bred pandas and I was actually on birth watch the day that Jinjin was born. So in that morning I could see like some discomfort on our panda cam we were watching her on. And then that afternoon, um, you know, the panda cub was born and it was just such a cool experience to go through that whole process. And then I kind of just put my feelers out in the rest of the area that pandas was attached to. And I worked with some bears and grizzly bears. And so all the bears that we had there. And then I eventually kind of got plugged back into polar bears. And I spent about four years working with polar bears, which was again, amazing. I mean, we were training polar bears to do ultrasounds awake and, just those particular bears. They're the only polar bears I've worked with, but they have such unique and amazing personalities. So that was a really fun time in my career. But again, you know, I kind of got to the point where I had, I remember saying to one of the managers, you know, I, I kind of feel like I want to work with things that can't kill me Yeah. if something goes wrong. And it didn't really quite work out the way I thought it was would because after that I worked with lions and jaguar <laughs> for a little while. And then in 2011, I got the opportunity to do a keeper exchange to Australia. So um, I went 
to the Melbourne Zoo for three months, and a keeper from there came and worked at San Diego, and I got my first real exposure to marsupials, and I was done. I forgot to mention this at the top of the episode, ah. but episode seven was Christy Williams, ah. and episode eight <laughs> is now Lindsay King, and those are the two keepers that exchange with each other. So if you guys remember back from episode seven, Christy came here and worked for a few months, and Lindsay got to go to Australia and, and uh, basically be Christy, so they cool. kind of flopped live. So it's <laughs> cool that it's worked out that way. But um, anyway, so yeah. Australia, you got your first exposure really to marsupials. Yeah. Right? And, you know, I didn't work with koalas too much there. The <clears throat> primary area I was in had a lot of kangaroo, and that that was awesome. I love them. I wish we had tons of kangaroos at San Diego. I, yeah, like, I, I just, yeah. they're so cool. I mean, at least we have parma wallaby, which kind of fills that niche for me a little bit, but it's not the same. Not like the when same. you have the big reds or grays, like yeah. jumping around you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Australia was amazing, and I came back and I said, I need to be on the Australian Outback Koala, like whatever whatever the team is at San Diego Zoo, I want to be on that team. And uh, it took me two years to get on the team, and then I did, and it still took me a little bit longer to be in the koala area full-time. So I've been at koalas now full-time for a year. And it is exactly where I'm supposed to be. It only took me <laughs> 12 years, 11 years to find it or figure it out and get there. But um, yeah, marsupials. That's a, awesome. A million percent, finally. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so I guess just talk about what it's like to be a koala keeper. You know, maybe just your general impressions and like maybe a short kind of synopsis of what it, what a day looks like for a koala keeper. Because sure. just like... Uh, Talking to Anne in episode five, I had no idea what the heck APC keepers do. Like they know. do Excel spreadsheets and like it pumps out a formula and they give this, tells them to give this much food to the chick and it has to be within one degree and just very technical stuff. So I know being a quality keeper is quite a bit different uh, yeah. than a lot of other areas too. So just kind of walk uh, the audience through sure. what it's like to be a quality keeper, I guess. So we have. Right now, I'm 23. I'm going to go 23 koalas. We're kind of in flux all the time. 23 koalas on site at the San Diego Zoo. That's including joeys that are still with their moms. Um, but we have kind of a little less than double that or the same amount out on loan at other institutions here in the U.S. and uh, in Europe. Some of those are kind of like permanent loans, but we yeah, still... but we we quote unquote own more than twenty three. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. we we own like twenty three on twenty three on site, site in San Diego. Yeah, and that's the most of any uh, facility outside of Australia. Yeah, right? any breeding facility. Yeah. And so, and we have um, Queensland koalas, so they're a little bit smaller than the ones um, in southern Australia, which are the southern koalas. So we have northern Queensland koalas, um, and. So we have a, a two to three keepers that work in the area a day. So we need to make up food for them, which is eucalyptus. It's the only thing they eat. And we're lucky that our climate here in Southern California is very similar to Australia. So we can grow eucalyptus pretty well. And we have a farm that I think is about 11 acres close to the zoo that we grow eucalyptus at. And then we also have some on site at the zoo and in different places around San Diego that our browse crew cuts for us, thankfully, because it takes a lot of browse to feed all those koalas. So we probably, I mean, I want to say go through about 250 pounds of browse a day, maybe a little less now that we have 
And and why is that? Because the koalas are super picky and <laughs> talk about like what they actually yeah. eat. Yeah. Um, yeah. So of that, you know, we, we may offer like 10 pounds of, of food, of browse eucalyptus to a koala, and they're probably only going to eat like a pound and a half to two pounds of it because they only eat the really tender tips. Um, eucalyptus is toxic. So uh, koalas require a special um, like bacteria in their stomach in order to digest it. And they get that when they're a joey from eating uh, poop from their mom. Mm -hmm. It's called PAP. So um, they have to have those microorganisms and everything in their stomach to help them digest it. So does mom like specifically like feed that to them? Like do they She just up kind of like excretes this real kind of soft stool. And because the koala pouch is kind of like um, outward Close almost there. down facing um, it puts the joey in a really good position to just kind of lick it off her bottom huh. yeah it's pretty gross but you know <laughs> just be grateful that you're not a marsupial we do that we, we've done that a few times with other animals uh, I think I can specifically remember a speaks gazelle that it just wasn't digesting mm -hmm. food so we would feed it yeah. feces from uh, the other ones in the exhibit and yeah. somehow uh, it actually ate it and you know, I guess it's just funny the way that we look at that stuff compared to what animal, how animals view that stuff. Like, yeah. they don't care. Yeah. Like, a bear will go and roll in its own crap. It'll yeah. pick some food out <laughs> of its own crap. Birds will go through, you know, horse it, feces yeah. and pick food out um, of it, you yeah. know. So it's just funny that uh, the way we view it and the way everything else views it. <laughs> it's because we weigh more junk uh, than That's true. Than animals because ours do. is way more gross than most animals' junk. <laughs> we don't want to get involved sure. with that. That's for sure. But, yeah, so, um, so yeah, we have to – we make up the brows. We um, – you know, each koala gets a specific amount of brows, and then we uh, hang it up in the exhibits. We've got canisters full of water to help keep the brows uh, alive during the day. Clean, do, you know, checks of the koalas as much as we can. We know they sleep about 20 hours a day, so their majority of their activity is generally when we're not there, but they're pretty active for the most part when we're giving them new brows in the morning. So Active in their... Trees, and, yeah. They don't do they. They don't spend a whole lot of time on the ground. They don't really. They so don't have to. When they defecate, do they just kind of they, hang over the edge and drop to the ground? Sometimes or? they don't even hang over the edge. So They're just the sleeping yeah. and pooping or peeing. They do come down to the ground sometimes to urinate or you know in the wild they would to move to a different tree. We do have evidence of our guys coming down at night and walking around. So so do you have to go up and like scrub spots on trees? We do like, sometimes stuff like that. Yeah, put a ladder up and scrub yeah. the perching. Yeah, okay. for sure. Um. So, um, let's see, uh, we wear koalas once a week because their weight is a really good indicator of health for us. Um, and each kind of koala has a specific weight range that's good for them. Individually. And individually, yeah. yeah. And then for our females, usually a drop of like 200 to 300 uh, grams is a good indicator of estrus, so being ready for breeding. And so we use that as a tool to help us breed. Um, and for me, being being a part of the breeding process is totally different than, you know, in the other parts of the zoo, it's like you have one jaguar, you know, one right, male, right, one right. female, and you put them together when they're ready and all your managers are there and it's a big to-do. Well, for us, you know, we get our stud book and we get our breeding recommendations and we put a chart out that says, like, this is number one, number two, number three, male for these females and when our female drops weight and is coming down on the ground and vocalizing and running around she's ready for breeding so we go to number one and as keepers we take that female to that male and we breed them 
And so, um, just back up for a minute. So yeah. you house the females and the males uh, separately. Yeah. So when we're going to have our little conjugal visit, um, do they go to a special koala room or does the male go to the female exhibit? Does the yeah. female go to the male exhibit? That's a good How question. Does that work? Um, sometimes we do have a little koala room that has some lower perching available sometimes, not always. Um, but usually we bring the females to the males because, as you said, our males are housed separately because they are territorial. And then the females are housed all together. They get along pretty well. So if you were to house all the males and all the females together, like would it just be chaos? Like yeah. what would happen with the males just the like males, chase out the yeah. females? And... Well, the males would fight with each other for sure. And we wouldn't be able to control breeding. We wouldn't know who yeah. is it. We'd be doing genetic testing. And right. then, you know. Um... So the males are fine together as long as there's no female mm -hmm. directly present. Oh, they're not. No. Okay. No. All the males are housed usually. So we can usually house males together until they're about three years old. So Joey males born of the same year from different moms, we can usually house together until they're about three years old. At three years old, they're really coming into their sexual maturity. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a good indicator for us when we bring a female to breed with another male that's in an adjacent room. And all of a sudden, those two little boys are just fired up because right. they want in on it. And then we're like, okay, now you're going to start fighting with each other. We have to separate you. Okay. So I didn't realize, I thought there was just two yards, one for males, one nope. for females. So you have multiple male yards yeah, and so you have, have to monitor who's getting along and who. Okay. We have 10 male yards okay. and all of the adult males are housed separately. With And then with the exception of our younger ones, we have two that are uh, just under two years old that are housed together still. Um, and then we had two that are three years old that were still housed together right now. They're on loan in Indianapolis until November. So Indianapolis is getting, getting some koala love right now. Nice. Um, so yeah, so a day is feeding koalas, um, breeding koalas if there's any in Astress. And you just kind of go down the list. So like mm -hmm. if you, you're number one on your list, you know, you put them with the female, nothing's really happening. You give them some time and then mm -hmm. you switch out for number two and mm -hmm. just go on down the list. Yep. Okay. Yep. And, and we've had pretty good success. We've yeah. got, uh, for this year, we've, well, they were, most of them are born at the end of last year, but we've got four joeys in the pouch right now. So that's exciting. So how long does it take for Mr. or Mrs. Joey to, to show its head <laughs> out, of, show out its of the head. patch? Or when do you guys go in and look? Are you sure. monitoring through the whole process? Yeah. Um, so, um, so when we breed a koala, we count out um, 29 days, and at day 29, we'll start birth watch until day 40, and usually they're going to give birth sometime between day 34 and 35. So we're talking about marsupials, like little tiny gummy bears yeah. being born, crawling up into the pouch, attaching to the nipple. And do you guys see that process of moving from... I have never seen the process. Okay. I'm sure there are some people who have, but yeah, we just look for signs of, you know, a, a specific posture that the female might sit in to give birth, kind of trying to shorten the distance between her colica and the pouch. Okay. Um, and maybe a little slime trail evidence yeah, of this little pink thing. Yeah, I was going to ask if there was thing. a slime trail, yeah. Um, so we look for stuff like that. And then during that day 29 to day 40, we're always looking on the ground, too, to see if the joey has fallen. And there have been times when that's happened. Um, we have a female, Tonalia, when she was born, she fell and was found by a keeper, like, shortly after birth and was able to be inserted into the pouch and attached to the nipple and she oh, wow. lived she lives um she's now what six years old and she's had four joeys 
So, wow, so yeah, it's, little it, miracle you can, Joey. You can save them if, yeah. if you catch it in time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So um, that happened before my time of being a koala keeper, but Tonal, I work with Tonalia now, and she's a great mom. So, um, breeding, breeding, breeding. How much? Uh, so uh, they only eat the tips of the eucalyptus. Uh, so how many times do you have to change out brows during the day? Do you just kind of watch for when they are just once? Yeah, oh, we okay. just feed them once, during once day, a day, unless okay. you know, on these super hot, crisp summer days, they dry um, out or something. We might have to switch them out. Oh, I didn't totally answer your last question about. Um, how long they're in the pouch. So you, they're born at day like 35 and then they spend at least about another six months in the pouch. And then we'll start seeing a head or a foot or this or that. And when you start seeing them naturally, are they already furry or are they are the still, part, still naked and pink? Yeah, for the most part, they they have fur on them. There, okay. there might be a time where we see a leg sticking out that's still pink and um, we just keep an eye on it. And uh, yeah, so we've got a couple Joey's right now that are riding around on mom's back. Unfortunately, don't come by the zoo right now to see them because we have construction <laughs> happening right next Everywhere. to the exhibit. And so we have all of our moms and Joey's off exhibit, which is a huge bummer, but um, they're all doing great. So, That's awesome. So yeah, we're really limited on koalas on exhibit right now, but um, so yeah. So I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here. Okay. Um, but what is it specifically? Because you're clearly koala crazy. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, I mean you, it's awesome. You found your spot. You yeah. found where you want to be. You're happy where you are. Yeah. So what is it specifically that drew you to that species in general? And maybe not, you know, whether it's a different different species or, you know, to a different marsupial even. Like, sure. why was it koala specifically, I guess? Um. Well, I think it just, I mean, like I said, I didn't really um, work with koalas that much in Australia. And I think it was just like whatever marsupial I just need to get close to it. So coming into the koala area, I didn't have koala okay. handling experience, you know, and I had just those like kind of three months of kangaroo experience with a few other things filtered in, but I just immediately became attached to them. And I wouldn't call myself a bunny hugger per se, <laughs> but after years of being a carnivore keeper, there was something super awesome about being able to handle the animals that you were working with. Now, don't get me wrong. Koalas are not all cute and cuddly. They yeah, have talk a little bit about that. Very sharp I think... claws. I mean, if this were not just recorded, you could see all the little scratches on my arms <laughs> from handling koalas. Um, and they have a very strong bite. So um, there's there's definitely that. I mean, Some we have, you know, there's the the myth of the drop bear, so to speak. And we have a koala who has been aggressive with people if he comes down to the ground he will chase you and there's nothing funnier than a person running from a little 15 pound fuzzy gray creature on the ground but it's happened i would love to see <laughs> there has to be video there, of that i'm sure there is because it's happened during public hours so you did just call it a little bear though i know i know so yes technically not a bear <laughs> Yeah, I know, koalas... we catch ourselves all the time. Koalas are not bears. They're marsupials. They don't have the proper qualifications. But, qualification, um, yeah. Uh... <laughs> but, um, yeah, totally. We, we call them bears, you know. They're like little kind bears. Of, as kind of the. Like you call your kids little monkeys or whatever. Yeah. My wife calls our cat a monkey. I know. It's the reason, term so... of endearment, yeah. but it's totally wrong for me to right. say it. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Called me out. Caught me. Uh... 
Because I'm always the first person to tell people they're not bears too. But I, uh, yeah, because I rem- <laughs> I, I think probably I've probably can... been snapped. Not not that I didn't know already, but I'm probably I'm sure I probably slipped at some point. But now, like every time I hear a guest say, "Where are the koala bears?" I, I will pull out the Lindsay King not and be like, uh, "Well, you know, they're over here." But just so you know, before you go over there and upset a koala keeper, they're not actually bears. <laughs> so good. Now you guys should get back at me uh, after all of my scolding uh, for years. So funny. Uh, okay, well, anything else you want to add about koalas or anything interesting else you might want to say? Or we, should we move on um, a little bit? I mean, just... They're amazing. They, I know. They're yeah, amazing. Like, uh, you, if you and, guys you know, can't see this, but it, you can just see it on her face. Like, <laughs> she, like, she's just... Uh, I'm in gaga land yeah. over koalas. But, you know, like, really, just importantly, like, I know they're not very charismatic as far as people come to the zoo and they're like, oh, they're sleeping, they're sleeping. But, um, you know, That's what they do. just like a lot of other animals in their native habitats, koalas are losing their habitat. So, um, you know, no tree, no me. If there are not eucalyptus trees in Australia, there are no places for koalas to live. So it, it's, a, it's a pretty kind of sad situation for them. So, so is it mostly just due to habitat loss from mm-hmm. human expansion or is there some other threat to them? Basically, basically, basically that, you is there, know, what, and then... Is there anything that eats them in the wild? Was anything prey on, on koala? Uh, like, potentially, as far as, like, joeys, like, eagles okay. or snakes. But, but really the biggest threat to adult koalas is when they're looking for new territory and they come down to the ground and they need to cross the street. Okay. Getting hit by cars. So um, there's nothing, there's no, I mean, I guess there's not any, like, giant predators in Australia, so yeah, it's not I mean, really... like, a, you know, on. just domestic animals too yeah. yeah that's a good point i mean there's all kinds of nasty stuff in australia snakes yeah. and yeah. i mean every every terrible i mean not terrible every like dangerous thing you've ever seen on discovery channel and National geographic pretty much lives in australia so. yeah yeah um, okay well um um stop tearing down all the eucalyptus trees i guess is the moral of the story uh especially since i mean i'm sure i'm sure australia is very good it has a good conservation program i assume Sometimes um, it's, it's kind hard. of like a, I mean, it's kind of like an other than I guess the kangaroo. It's kind of like people think of Australia, they think of koalas, right? Yeah. So. But people also think that there's tons of koalas, but yeah. again, it's the same. Like they've lost. There's been a huge loss in the number of koalas, and because they can be so hard to census to find kind of unsure of how many there really are out there. So is there? I think I already know the answer to this. Is probably no, but. Um, like with obviously the plight of the orangutan and everything, you know, there's very much in, in uh, public thought right now is, you know, uh, is palm oil plantations and things like that. And how, how, how you can help with that, you know, you can download apps that tell you which foods have which oils and which, whatever, you know, you're, there's ways to, to support orangutan conservation without, you know, going there and mm-hmm. with foot on the ground. Is there anything like that for koalas that people could make themselves aware of in terms of, I don't know, is there like, like, is there, are, are, are eucalyptus being harvested, you know, for, you know, eucalyptus oils and a ton of things that we use? Like, is that an issue or is it just really like, we want to build housing here, um, so we need to tear down these trees? Is yeah, it- as far as I know, it's not anything specific due to the trees or needing to plant something in place of the trees or anything like that. It's okay. just expansion. Okay. Um, but yeah, you know, like San Diego Zoo Global does a lot of great work with koala research. So um, definitely like check out the Wildlife Conservancy. They'll have, um, information about what San Diego Zoo does for koalas as well. 
All right. Well, um, that's all fantastic information. So uh, let's move on real quick and just touch on, since it is National Zookeeper Week and you are the queen of National Zookeeper Week at the San Diego (laughs) Zoo. I don't know if I would call myself the queen of it. Um, But uh, yeah, so just talk about like, I think we talked a little bit at the beginning, but you know, just kind of a general idea of what it is and and what we do and, you know, maybe what, you know, the rest of the country does. Sure. Um, So... National Zookeeper Week started in uh, 2007, and so it's been going for a little while, and um, it's always the third week of July. So mark your calendars to hug your keepers the third week of July every year. Um, And this week, or this year in San Diego, um, AZAC has really come together, and um, some great planning. I have to plug Kristen Craig, because she has done amazing things. you got to get her on here. Yeah, okay. Um, She's she's uh, done some amazing planning for this week, and so actually tonight, you know, we're doing just a fun night out, a, a paint and sip, and they're gonna paint a giraffe and drink wine, um, just a fun little extra thing that keepers um, could go to, and uh, we've got some happy hours and some bonfires, just so like some social things to bring keepers together during the week outside of work, but really during the week, it's just about promoting what we do as keepers and why we love our jobs and how we got here. And, um, you know, I don't know, just feeling proud of what we do. And sometimes you feel silly, like having a week to celebrate what we do. But at the same time, like if you make friends outside of this career, you often feel like the odd man out, like, oh, I can't go out because I need to get up at 4.30 or 5 because I love my job and I'm going to go see animals all day and then I need to go to bed at eight. So I'm not really the cool kid to hang out with, but, um, yeah, it's just really an opportunity for, for us to share what we do and how much we love our animals and, you know, for the public to take a part in it as well. I had a friend come, um, from, uh, North San Diego yesterday and come down to the zoo and she participated in a little enrichment project that, um, thanks the keepers and it's going to be given to the animals later in the week. And, you know, she posted it on Facebook and, you know, got to visit my keeper today. So it's super nice to feel recognized because, you know, you don't always get that. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I don't know. It's my feels... train of thought, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, most, I can't say all keepers, but most keepers are there for the animals to do a good job for the animals, to make the animals lives a lot better. Um, I mean, that's what our that's what we're there for, yeah. to be a voice for the animals and to give them what they they need so that they can make a connection with people and that people can go support, you know, the wild, their wild counterparts. Um, so, um, God, totally I mean, well, I feel like we don't really think of ourselves as special, like right. or of deserving any but, extra attention. But it's cool to be able to share like this is what we do and why we do it. And yeah, you know, what, honestly probably most of us wish that zoos didn't exist. Like I would exactly. love if anim- like we didn't have to have zoos, but the animals that are in zoos can't live in the wild because there's no wild for them to go to anymore. And that's a whole nother story. <laughs> that's I'm, a whole I'm not, gonna, I'm not going I'm not that direction. I'm not going to open that can of worms. But, yeah. you know, like if someone has to take care of animals in a zoo setting, we're really proud to do it. Like, we feel privileged to have this job, but you know, we're we we, we feel like, we feel privileged to have it, and I think people I think people want to. 
Um, I think people like think they, or at least they think they, it's something that they would want to do. And so like when you're at a party or whatever, especially when people don't like, I'm, I get this a lot being the husband of a, of a teacher. Um, you know, whenever I'm at a social event, they're like, you know, they want to talk to you about your job. Um, but it's not like, I don't know where I'm going. So well, I mean, it's not like they're like, oh, you're doing such a good job. They're interested because they think we cuddle animals all yeah, day, whereas yeah. that is not what we think about yeah. when we're there. You know, we have maybe 20 or 30 minutes a day, max maybe, where we're doing a, a keeper talk or, or something where we're holding an animal or whatever. Yeah. The rest of it, you know, we're changing brows. Yeah. We're scrubbing trees. Uh, we're scrubbing poop off of trees. Yeah. Bird keepers have to clean leaves. You know, we're, we're uh, digging trenches. We're doing yeah. all this stuff to make, uh, the lives of our animals better, basically. Yeah. And, you know, you know, to make other people at the zoo happy as well. But our focus, obviously, is on the animals. Yeah. And to be able to celebrate that and be able to show people what we do. And, in fact, I don't even know I'm supposed to put this out there right now, but the San Diego Zoo right now is doing this really amazing thing this year where they uh, have allowed keepers to just kind of pull guests aside into, you know, behind-the-scenes kind of areas where and just show them what it's like to you know, where we work, what we do, show them the animals, um, show them like how they live, what we do for them, all that stuff. And that's really cool, I think, to be able to, um, that they provided us with that opportunity to be able to go even beyond yeah. the normal keeper talks and stuff that we do. Now, a so. special moment. Yeah, exactly. And that's what it's all about for us, other than making our animals lives better, is sharing those stories with people. So, yeah. Um, yeah so thanks for uh, putting all these fun stuff together for the keepers. I think we got, I missed out today, but I think it's happening again couple days uh we had root beer floats or something uh, we have like a pizza day a pizza coming day up tomorrow, tomorrow right? fact, so. um and then we've got um a, a brew night at a local brewery and then our our bonfire to end the week on friday yeah so, so it's a it's a fun week for us and uh we hope you guys are okay with us celebrating ourselves <laughs> a little bit i, I guess know. <laughs> um you know uh, well, anyway, so we're almost done here, um, but before we go, the guest's favorite part has to come up now, and the keepers that are on the show's least favorite part, generally. <laughs> um, uh, tell us a funny or embarrassing story involving an animal, Lindsay King. Involving it. See, I tried to get out of this because <laughs> I don't really have any epic, embarrassing stories, and honestly, I wish I did. I really, because I hear other people's stories, I'm like, man, when is something, like, ridiculous going to happen to me? I mean, honestly... I, I get peed on every day by koalas. I, I feel like they just know, and we have a... But do guests ever see that? So if it's not, then that's not really I embarrassing. I know, right? Because... That's insane. Well, I mean, I did... Uh, we have a female who, like, pees on me every time. Well, I guess, I mean, they probably see me carrying her, like... <laughs> but her Joey, her Joey recently, like kind of got itself in a dangling situation and peed this and this was in the public area peed all over my face while I'm trying to help it get back to mom and then you know this is totally disgusting but as a keeper sometimes you're just like whatever I was like I got stuff to do yep. I don't have time to go wash my face right now like yep. wipe it off whatever. your towel or your shirt sleeve keep and... moving so you know there's that um not involving an animal, but I totally like slipped and half my body fell into the polar bear pool on the morning of going to have breakfast with our director a few years ago. And I walked in with one squishy boot and apologized for being late. And when they asked if there was anything, you know, 
anything that anybody wanted to share had on their mind or a request or whatever. And I was just like, can we not like have the polar bears would be so slippery? Cause then I wouldn't have been late. Like it's really uh, slippery out there. I have busted my, I've busted several parts of my body in that. Yeah. Exhibit. I haven't fallen into the pool, but I have definitely fall, taken some falls in there. So. Yeah. So re- I mean, I honestly yeah. really don't have anything like super embarrassing, which makes me sad really. So if someone would like to step me up at some point, <laughs> I'm okay with that. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll give you a pass, I guess. I that, they're, still, they're still pretty good stories. Just um, getting peed on. Yeah, if anyone that's... can think of one, you can share one on it. Okay, <laughs> I, will. I will. I will think about that. Um, okay, well, we've gone. Uh, we've actually, you thought we weren't going to go very long, but we're almost at an hour already, what? Lindsay. I know, I'm right? Sorry, it goes by everyone's so gonna fast. Everyone's going to be bored of listening uh, to me. No. Um, but uh, before before we get out of here, um, I always like to give my guests, you know, just an opportunity to talk about whatever it may be in the zoo world that you want to talk about. Um, just kind of like, you know, get something off your chest or share something extra about koalas or I know what you can do. If you, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a, a prompt here. Okay. Uh, so you can, if you want, if you want to, it's not the zoo world, but talk a little bit of, uh, about like competition and stuff that you're doing now with horses. Like I know you do some kind of fancy, oh. like, is it called like dressage or something dressage. where the, where it looks like the horses are tap dancing or, I don't even know anything about that, so I'm going to learn something now, too. Okay. So maybe maybe that's something you could... Well, I wish it looked that... I mean, I'm not at that level yet. Okay. But, um, yeah, so I grew up riding hunter jumpers, which is um, just more relaxed. I don't know. It's more my style. And so dressage is really about the movement of the horse and um, control between the horse and the rider. So it's something new for me that I'm learning. I got um, kind of hooked up with this... A team of people who ride Frisian horses, which are, um, I mean, most recognized for being like war horses okay. on TV. I'm sure you've seen them on Game of Thrones, oh, big yeah. black horses uh, from the Netherlands. Um, they're just exquisite, beautiful horses. And it's a dream to be able to ride one. And so I got hooked up with this uh, group of people who ride them in parades around San Diego. So, um, a few times a year, we get dressed up in, in Renaissance garb and ride the horses down the streets of San Diego in different parades. And that's just been a really fun, different experience. Like, I never thought as a kid that I would be riding a horse in a parade. Like, how cool is that? So, um, but in addition to that, I get to take lessons on some of these amazing horses. And um, starting dressage, it makes me a little nervous to think about getting back into the competition zone after so many years, but maybe, maybe next year I'll compete again. So, um, so we'll see. And then we've also been riding the horse horses in what's called a quadrille. So we ride, um, four or six horses together side by side, a two side by side in rows, um, and ride them through different patterns set to music. So we're working on that too. Just I've got I've, I've got I've got two follow up questions for you. Okay. Number one, if you were able to hold a koala while riding in a parade, <laughs> would that just be like the best moment of your entire life? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's I'll more take, of a rhetorical question. I'll but. take my koala child Bradley with me. Uh, yeah. Um, and then uh, second question is if. I, at some point in your life, I assume you might have a little land with a horse of your own mm-hmm. that you call your own. So what kind of horse would you, if you could only pick one, Ooh. your very first horse you're going to buy for yourself, what, what's it going to be and why? I mean, I almost want a Frisian, but I don't think I can afford one. Um, honestly, I would be really happy with 
any horse. And I, I would almost feel like it would be a rescue horse or an off-the-track thoroughbred, kind of like a second chance. Because, um, you know, heartstrings. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it would be really incredible someday to have a piece of land somewhere beautiful. A little farmhouse, goats, horses, chickens. Yeah. I'm getting in the zone here. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay, for coming on the show today. Yeah. Um, Lindsay is an amazing keeper, um, one of my best friends. And uh, one of these days I'll have somebody on the show that uh, I've never met before, and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, thank you guys so much for listening and tuning in. And uh, I'm going on vacation for a couple weeks here, but uh, we will definitely be back with another episode as soon as I'm back and we have another keeper that wants to do it. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, if you are a keeper out there, the only way this show exists is if you are willing to tell your story or want to tell your story. So if you want to do that, please contact me. Um, you can get in touch with me um, from at Gmail. It's uh, zookeeperstories at gmail.com or on Twitter at zookeeperstory. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. I hope you learned something about zookeeping and uh, see you later. Thank you for listening to the Zookeeper Stories podcast. I hope you learned something about zookeeping and had a few laughs along the way. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and Stitcher. It really helps me to grow the show and continue to improve. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you can send an email to zookeeperstories at gmail.com or tweet me at zookeeperstory.